We're going to overlap chapter 13 and, and get down through chapter 14 today. I'm not going to preach verse by verse, so uh, it's all right. It won't take us any longer than normal. Second Samuel chapter 13, would you look at verse 37? The Bible says, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Jeshur. So this is his, his father-in-law. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Jeshur and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. So what had happened is Amnon had raped his sister Tamar, and Tamar was the full sister of Absalom. He was the half-sister of Amnon. He was the full sister of Absalom. And Absalom set up a, a plan, and uh, we saw that back in chapter 13, though we didn't go over that portion last week, but... Back in chapter 13, Absalom set up a plan to have a big meeting and have all the king's sons there and all the rest of that stuff and had a guy appointed. And he said, when I give you the word, you go ahead and you kill Amnon. Absalom had been so furious with Amnon for what he did to his sister that he didn't even speak to him another word ever again. And he set up the whole deal to where when we have this get-together after some time had passed and the, the, the intensity of the situation had blown over and everybody had adjusted and dealt with it and Tamar had left and came into Absalom's house and just living there with her brother Absalom taking care of him. Absalom's waiting. He's got a very, very, very angry spirit. He's so done with Amnon, he can't look at him, he can't speak to him, and all he wants is Amnon dead for what he did. And so he waits and sets it up and then gets the job done. And once he kills Amnon, the messenger comes and tells David, oh, you know, all your sons are dead. And Jonadab, that snake who was behind the whole deal with pressing Amnon to get the job done in the first place to help Amnon do what Amnon wanted to do, that snake Jonadab happened to be there and says, oh, don't believe him. And not all the king's sons, just Amnon. See, Jonadab, I don't like him. He knows all the information. He knows what's going on with everybody. He's even got the accurate information. He's really into everybody else's business, even into their minds, into their motives, into what's going on and what their problems are. He's just a little snake. And so he tells David, don't worry, they're not all dead, just Amnon's dead. And no remorse, but hey, Amnon. So David's like, all right. So Absalom realizes that David's real mad and he runs to his father-in-law. He gets out of Israel and he goes over there to the king of Jeshur. And there he is and he's dwelling there with his, his I'm sorry, his grandpa. I think his mother was a, ch- a child of the king of Jeshur. I think that's his grandpa. But anyways, it's his in-law on the other side and he runs over there and he's hiding there with him. But the Bible says, notice this, and I want you to notice this. I want you to see how wild this is. It says, And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. Then in chapter 14, verse 1, Now Joab the son of Zariah perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner. And put on now mourning apparel, and anoint thyself with oil, but be as a woman that hath long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king, and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So what Joab tells her to do, which we'll we'll look at it, but we're not going to go verse by verse. So let me just tell you the story, rather than take the time it would take to read this story. It's a long one. Joab tells her to go in there and present this case to the king about her and her sons and all the rest of this stuff and how her name is going to be put out in Israel and her husband's name. And just give him this big sob story, take him all the way down and then wait for him to give a judgment on the situation. And when he gives the judgment, then tell him what this is actually all about. Turn it on him and ask him why he hasn't brought Absalom back 
from the exile that Absalom was in. Put it on David. So Joab's taken like that situation with Nathan after David had committed adultery when he came in and presented a story and David made a judgment and then turned it on him. That's how Nathan did it when God sent him. Joab's trying to play the same game. He's playing God and he's messing with God's business. And he's trying to set that whole thing up in sort of a biblical way, you know. That's how Nathan did it. And he sets it up again. And he sticks his nose where it doesn't belong. And he winds up making an unbelievable mess of the situation. What I want to preach to you about this morning is messing with God's business. Messing with God's business. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. I thank you so much for already the songs that we've sung. They're about you. And you are a great God, and we thank you for our salvation, and we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanseth us from all sin. Thank you that that blood is permanent and powerful. Thank you that that blood is stronger than me. And Lord, I love you for the salvation that you've given to me, and I'm thankful for it. I thank you, Lord, that sometimes you do calm the storms. You've calmed and stopped a lot of problems and pulled me out of a lot of situations, and you're a miracle-working God. You can calm winds and calm waves at your will. But Lord, the hard part is when you choose not to calm the winds and waves. And Lord, I think that's the best part. Because I get to know you better when you hold me. And let the problems go. Let the problems continue, but you hold me. I think I learn more about you in those situations. So I pray now this morning as we look at this story. And we watch you take care of your man David. And you watch you bring the judgment on the people that need it, I pray that you would hold us this morning, that you'd teach us some things, that you'd help us, Lord, to learn today not to mess with what your business is. Help us to allow you to be God and help us to learn how to control ourselves and to put ourselves in a position where we can let you do whatever you're doing and not make things worse. But Lord, faithfully and continually walk with you no matter what's going on around us. And in the end, Lord, in the final outcome, may our hearts be fully sold out to you even more than they ever have been before. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What blows my mind is to watch the love that King David's heart has. What a man that actually can forgive somebody who killed his son. And actually not just, not just be able to forgive him and find the comfort he needs for the loss, but then to actually long for that relationship between him and that wicked kid to be restored. That, that boy hurt him. He hurt the family. He hurt David. Yet as I, I look at David's life and I watch David, man, I, I admire him more and more as time goes on. I'm sad that he had such a horrible experience we saw a couple weeks ago. I'm sad to see his human side and his failure, but I'm very comforted to see that God can even use a failure. I'm very comforted to see that God can take a man like David with the mistakes that he made and God can actually continue to work in and through his life even though the fallout from his decisions continue to affect his life and continue to affect the people around him. The fallout of 
David's decision is Amnon's death because David said that man who, who took the other sheep, he's going to restore fourfold. And this is one of the four. David actually loses his son Amnon. So indirectly, even though Amnon made his own choices indirectly, this is God's way of working on a level that, like we were talking about before church, I was talking with Brother Andrew. It's amazing to see how God works. A man could never do it. It's so intricate. It's so detailed. It's on so many levels that it really humanly, it looks absolutely impossible. It'll, it'll kind of make sense. You'll go, oh, I see that, but there's no way to orchestrate that. I mean, how did God bring a judgment on Amnon that Amnon deserved because Amnon deserved it? And he made his own choices because he has a free will. And yet at the same time, this was God's direct judgment on David as a result of what David had done with Bathsheba, but God never overrides anybody's free will at any point. That's wild. Absalom's another one that is going to wind up being continued judgment of God, but Absalom is making his own choices. It's not David's fault that Absalom is doing what he does. And if Absalom had not been or Amnon had not been the fulfillment of that judgment, somebody else would have. It's wild to watch how God can work. And yet, even though the judgment of God is on David for what he has done, God is still using David, and he still is the greatest king Israel ever saw. He's actually got some future promises in the millennium, and he's, he's like the seed of Jesus Christ comes from David. I mean, it is amazing to see how God can love, and how God can forgive, and how God can restore. I mean, it's wild to me to watch the power of a loving heart that can actually drop something so drastic that had been done when an apology was never given and repentance had never come from Absalom. Yet the power of David's heart to love his son overrides all of it. You ever stop and consider how much of your New Testament you're told that you're to love one another? (laughs) Jesus said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love, one to another. Now listen, it's one thing to love your kids. Come on. It's one thing to love your spouse. You gotta say that one. It's one thing to love your spouse. Thank you. It's a whole other thing to love somebody that does you wrong. Jesus says, what thank have ye if you love them that love you also? The real metal of your Christianity, the real test of your closeness to Jesus Christ, the real test of your walk with Him, the real test of your devotion to Him will come down to it if you can love somebody that's done you wrong. And man, that is not easy to do. Mike Reagan, I will just tell you this, I'll just confess. Mike Reagan, I'm confessing my fault, not my sins. So you're not going to get any juicy details or specifics. Mike Reagan, in and of himself, in the spirit, the personality, the mindset, the attitude, the composition that I have in my human nature, I am literally not capable. Without a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, without the Word of God, without prayer, without the Spirit of God, there is no way that I can do what God has asked me to do. You'd think when you go into some churches that the Bible actually says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you're better than everybody else. 
You'd think in some churches that what they think that says, their translation says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you're into everybody else's business and can show where they're wrong and how they're wrong and why they're wrong and what they're doing wrong, if you can criticize everybody else, everybody will know that you are the pinnacle of Christianity. But the Bible doesn't say that. Although many Christians live that. It says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. I don't know what it is about the Bible-believing crowd, but we're almost afraid of the word love. Listen, just because the charismatics and the modern-day contemporary church and the grace, ultra-grace people and all the rest of that stuff have perverted the application of this, they faked it, doesn't mean it's no longer in my Bible. I am not afraid of the Holy Spirit. I'm not afraid of allowing him to influence me. I'm not afraid of surrendering to him and following him. I'm not, I'm not like, because I'm, I'm, I'm not a charismatic, so I don't want to be, I'm not afraid of that. If the Lord's encouraging your heart during service, if you're getting excited during the songs, if that's being a blessing to you when she's singing, scream amen, it's okay. We're not afraid of the Holy Spirit around here. And guess what? I'm not afraid of love. I want to learn to love people more. I want to learn to be more like King David. I want to learn to be able to let it go and love them anyhow. Listen, that's how they're going to know that what we have is real because you live in a world that is absolutely bankrupt of real love. Keep your finger here in 2 Samuel, please, and go over with me to the book of 2 Timothy. I want you to see chapter number 3. I want to point out to you from this passage how absolutely pertinent this message is to the day and age in which we live. And if we can really learn what God wants us to learn from this, not only will we not hurt one another, not hurt our families, but we won't hurt our church. And then beyond that, We'll see God continue to bless our church. Our church has been growing and God's been very gracious in that arena here recently. And I mean, I'm answering uh, more and more emails and phone calls and phone conversations of people like, hey, I found you online. Hey, I, I found out you guys, you know, I recently had one about rightly dividing and said, we're not going to be able to make it tomorrow, but we really want to come. Local people. Listen, God's blessing. And as a church grows, guess what that means? More sinners are walking in here with more personalities to cause more problems and create more opportunity for trouble. Guess what? I still want to grow. I still want to reach people. And I believe the glue that will hold us together, the glue that will help us not self-destruct, not begin destroying everything around us, is learning how to love one another the way we ought to love one another. And it's important, but it's something that this world knows nothing about today. 2 Timothy 3.1 This know also in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Gentlemen, that is why the Lord told you to love your wife as your own body. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. You live in that day. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. These are all symptoms. These are all fruits of somebody that loves themselves unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. So no longer do women love their children like they ought to. No longer do men love their wives and love their kids like they ought to. Just not even natural. Just weird. Just whacked out. Just messed up. Traitors, uh, uh, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, 
They don't care who they lie about, what, what deals they break, or whether or not they destroy somebody's reputation or testimony. If they can say it about them and get back at them, they'll do it. They'll just, they'll just lie about them. False accusers. Incontinent means they can't control themselves. Fierce. Fierce. Like they'll gut you and gut your family. Despisers of those that are good. Trying to do right. You believe the Bible. You believe the Word of God. You have the right kind of standards in your life. Right standards are more. They hate you. Traitors on your side one day and not anymore. Heady. High-minded. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Now watch this. So far, this is all the demise of a culture. This is all the demise of somebody's personal character. And, and it's like, it's, it's very, very damaging to your family, to your friends, to the people around you. you. What I just read was heartbreak. That's what I read. What I read there is that you have a culture of in, mentally and emotionally messed up and destroyed people. What I just read there is you have children that have no security at all. They're, their own home, they don't know what love is. They don't watch mom and dad love each other. They don't understand what, they, they're broken. Kids whose parents don't love them, don't have any time for them. Just disconnected from natural affection. Disconnected from that child and their life and any interest or time that you can put into them. Mom and dad, they don't even have time for one another. Everybody's sitting in the same room and they're all on a different device. Tuned out. Now watch in verse 5. It's very interesting because what you're going to see is that the culture... And the character issues of the individuals within the culture spills over into the church. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. So they'll come across very spiritual sometimes. They'll talk God. They'll go to church on Sunday morning. They'll even tip Jesus, you know, throw a little money in the box. And, you know, they'll talk very religious, but they got this form of godliness, but they don't have the power of God on their life. The, the power of God on your life has nothing to do with you being able to raise a million dollars. The power of God on your life has nothing to do with you showing off your, your spiritual gifts. The power of God on your life is, can you love somebody like you? Can you control yourself? Can you put yourself down and sacrifice and lay down your own desires to love somebody else and administer to somebody else and to care about somebody else? The power of God on your life is power to control you. That's the power of God. God will never use a man or a woman he can't control. you got an incontinent culture. And then we come into Christianity and we put on a form of godliness, but we don't really have the power of God on our lives. It says, from such turn away. For of this sort, these kind of people with the form of godliness, but no power, no self-control... Are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts? So they're homebreakers. They're adulterers. These kind of men don't consider what they're doing to a family, what they're doing to children, what they're doing to her, what they're doing to her husband, what they're doing to a marriage. They have absolutely no regard for anything other than me, my pleasure, what I want. And they're going to feed that. And notice, they're ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Man, you've got so many people that know so much nowadays, it's just disgusting. But they don't have the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. 
So he's, he's saying, listen, Moses was the man with the words of God, right? Moses was the man that went and talked to God, got God's words, brought those words down, and gave those words directly to the people. So what happens is, in a wicked and evil culture, when you have a church that actually learns to love one another and is strong in the Lord, and the devil's not like eating us up from the inside, which he does with many churches. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Well, we don't do that at our church. Okay, so we're, we're out of the water. We're good. Nothing's going to hurt our church. Not so. Because when you have a church that loves one another and loves the Lord and is doing their best to control themselves and not cause trouble, like I believe you do, then the devil will say, okay, I know how to get to them now. We'll send in men that know nothing about love, but they only love themselves, but they're going to look really spiritual. They're going to talk really spiritual. Their outward form is going to look good. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said, after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Always a threat from the outside. It talks about it over there in uh, the book of Galatians. They saw they, they come in secretly trying to spy out our liberty in Christ. And you don't know who's who necessarily. So what happens is these corrupt people come in and what they do is like they withstood Moses. They went after Moses. Why? Because they had a desire to run the show. See, I'm, I'm setting you up for next week's message. Inside them was a desire to be the boss. Inside them was a desire to run the show. So they come in and what they do is they withstand Moses, but what they don't realize is it is not about Moses. It's about God. It's not about Moses. It's about the words of God. So they come in very educated because, look, everybody has education nowadays. Everybody can sound smart. Everybody can sound educated. They have their YouTube channels, and you can get inundated with all the spiritual talking heads that you want. You can hear so much information and, ooh, ah, that's really good, but it's not necessarily the truth. What, what it boils down to is that Absalom in our passage, we'll go there in a second, he looks really good. He knows how to talk to the people. But Absalom doesn't have the heart that David has. And as a result, he can sound like David and look like David and appear to be David, but he ain't a David because he doesn't have in his heart what God's looking for. And these men don't either. Go down with me for the sake of time. Skip down to verse number 13. It says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So what he's telling you is that it's going to get worse. The evil men like Joab, that we're going to look at in a second, the evil men like Amnon, the evil men like Absalom, are actually going to multiply as we get closer and closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. They already have multiplied in the last couple of years. And there's going to be more and more of them. Now, if there's one thing I hate, and I can say this biblically, I hate evil men. Now, the second an evil man will confess and get right, then that's got to end, right? But I, I hate evil men. I don't want to be an evil man. Because where we started out at the beginning of this whole thing when we started this series is the dichotomy of the Christian life. I told you already, Mike Reagan's spirit, it ain't what the Lord wants it to be. And I got that always after me. It says the evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. And notice, deceiving, that's the evil man who comes in to withstand, Janus, uh, to withstand Moses. And being deceived. 
You wonder why these, these churches that don't preach the truth and don't give them the truth seem to be doing so well and growing so much? You see all the money they got? How could a church as wicked as some of the mainline denominations with the filthiness going on in their leadership even? How can some of those churches still keep growing and still keep getting? It's because the people want the deception that the leaders are giving them. So it's not just the leaders that are evil. It's people that listen to evil leaders that are evil. Deceiving and being deceived. Now here's the answer. Watch this. What do we do in that day? We live in that day. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. I've learned some things. I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because I remember my preacher saying, what I know, I know, I know. And you're not going to convince me I don't know what I know, I know. I know what I know. And there's some things that I've learned from this book and from the Holy Spirit of God and from the men that have taught me that have proven themselves over the years to me, to God, to everybody else. And I'm assured of some things. So guess what I'm doing? With God's help, I'm continuing in what I know to be the truth. Knowing of whom thou hast learned them. I already covered that. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So let's go back to Psalm, 2 Samuel chapter 14. And let's get some of that instruction in righteousness this morning to see how we should conduct ourselves and how we can spot those threats from the outside that may come in to try to destroy the work so that you don't get caught up in messing with God's business. The first thing that I notice what happens, and there's a a major danger here, when you get hurt. What happened with Absalom is that when he got hurt, he decided he was going to get even. That's what he does back in chapter 13, verses 21, all the way down through verse number 39, is he decides that he's going to take vengeance on Amnon. Amnon had committed a heinous crime against his sister. Now, put yourself in Absalom's shoes. If somebody did something like that to my sister... I can absolutely understand the uncontrollable urge to end him. I get it from Absalom's viewpoint. The level of atrocity, the level of wickedness, how unfair for somebody stronger to overpower the will of somebody else and abuse somebody that's beneath them and manipulate them like he did. What a wicked pile of garbage that man is. Ever been hurt? Now, I'm not talking about going to the extent that the story went to. If that's the case, we call the police. Just, Just so you know, 100%. Well, that's taking vengeance. No, 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 no. Me taking vengeance and getting even with somebody for doing that would be me and that individual alone in a dark basement with them tied up and then I'll leave it there because you don't want to know how my imagination works. (laughs) But it wouldn't be fast. It wouldn't be easy. It wouldn't be fun and I wouldn't care. You understand what I'm saying? 
What's right is to follow the Scriptures and let God deal with it. And if you've been sinned against on that level, you call the authorities. And you go ahead and you let them deal with the situation. That is not vengeance, that's justice. And it's biblical in the New Testament according to the book of Romans. Taking that situation and setting it aside. Have you ever been hurt by somebody and it just wasn't right? You know what breaks my heart? Breaks my heart to watch people try to do right with all their heart. Making the best decisions they can make and then having leaders over them that refuse to recognize their efforts to do right. Constantly picking apart every little mistake and problem and flaw they have because they have a desire to control them. I'm talking about sincere Christians that are trying to do right, that are getting frustrated and angry and bitter. And before long, you're like, that's not fair. That's not right. I don't know why that happened, why they did that to me, why they said that to me, why somebody in church falsely accused me, why other people believe that kind of an accusation. I'm talking about any level of hurt that can go to all different. I can't pick apart the details of, of life, but you know people. You know what happens to you. You've seen what's happened to others. Can I tell you that when somebody's done you wrong, the worst thing you can do is begin scheming and, and plotting and planning and refusing to speak to them, refusing to look at them because they did me wrong, they lied about me, they said this, I can't believe, I can't believe what they did to me. When you settle your own score, you are messing with God's business. Do you know why God doesn't judge some people? Take, for example, a divorce. Divorce, it gets really nasty. It's funny because you can go sit down and talk with him if they're Christians, and he's all about, you know, God's going to get her, and she's out of line, and she's this, and she's that, and everything. She, and I, you know what? I don't even know if she's saved. Okay. Here we go again. I hear that every time. Okay. And then you go talk to her. God's going to get him and God doesn't put up with that and he's abusive and he's this and he's that and he's the other thing and I don't even know if he's saved. You know what I've seen? I'm talking more than once. I've seen both sides of the equation screaming the vengeance of God on the other side and God's like, I'm not messing with them. Literally. God's like, we'll deal with that at the judgment seat of Christ but you've already punished them enough in this life where you took vengeance into your own hand and you're dying for me to step up and make it worse so everybody will see and know that you were right and they were wrong and I'm really not into all that because I don't see any heart of Jesus Christ anywhere in the whole situation since you handled it, then you can deal with the fallout of handling it since you think you're God. One of the biggest problems I've seen, one of the biggest mistakes I've made has been when somebody definitely and clearly did me wrong and I got even. The fallout from that, it it can't even necessarily be predicted. And I'm telling you this much, it can't be controlled. You want to get even because somebody did you wrong. Okay, so ignore The book of Romans. Clearly Pauline, unquestionably to the church, practically, historically, doctrinally, and on every level. And he said to you and I, be careful. Avenge not yourself. It's God that's supposed to avenge you. I think it's the book of Romans chapter number 12, and I horribly butchered the verse. 
But it says, brethren, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. You're not supposed to avenge yourself. One of the number one ways God's people mess with God's business is when somebody does them wrong, they got to get even. That's exactly what Absalom did. Absalom just ruined his own life by settling a score that God was supposed to settle. You know what I'm afraid of? I am so afraid of being an Absalom. Because when I'm hurt, when somebody does me wrong, when I'm genuinely hurt and I got a just reason to be hurt, I become dangerous. I don't just become dangerous to the person that hurt me. I become dangerous to myself. I don't just become dangerous to the person that hurt me and myself. I become dangerous to everybody else that loves me. Because when I commit that action, there's a fallout for the actions I commit. And I can't control where that fallout goes. I love her. I love my girls. Somebody else does me wrong. I don't want to hurt them. I love you. I don't want to hurt you. Somebody else does me wrong. So I go and I lash out to get even, but now I'm damaging my own testimony. I'm damaging a relationship. I'm not acting like Jesus Christ. And what it boils down to, more importantly than anything else, you, them, the enemy, and more important, it damages my relationship with Jesus Christ. When I'm hurt, when somebody... Listen, I'm not talking about gray areas. I'm talking about somebody really did me wrong. I have a golden opportunity. Do you know what my opportunity is? My opportunity is right there in front of me to stretch myself. To, like Paul said, be also enlarged. Like that fork in the road I think we talked about last week. I have a decision to make. Am I going to grow in my love Like Jesus Christ? Am I going to grow in my charity? Am I going to grow in grace? Am I going to be more like my Savior than I've ever been before? Or am I going to feel good about getting them? Well, I'll tell you, when you make that choice and you say, Lord, help me, Lord, help me, I'm not only not going to get them, I want to love my enemies. Folks, we're talking about PhD-level Christianity, okay? I don't care how many verses you can quote. I don't care how many seminaries or or whatever cemeteries you've been to. I don't care how much you understand rightly dividing and the levels that that thing goes to and the beauty of of the perfect congruity of the Word of God. Listen, if you don't understand rightly dividing, you have to correct your Bible. That's why people that don't rightly divide oftentimes use other versions because they can't make anything in the Bible make sense until they rightly divide it. And all that stuff is pertinent. The first application of Scripture is your doctrine. But what good does it really do us? What good does that doctrine do you? What good does it do the people you love? What good does it do your influence? What good does it do our church? What good does it do your life as it plays out with all the pains that come? If we can't get the spirit behind what's taught in that book. I don't just want the doctrine, I want the spirit. I don't just want the letter, I want the spirit. And when do I have the opportunity to show that? Better than when somebody did me wrong and they got it coming. And I say, you know what? No. 
You'll know you're struggling with whether or not you're an Absalom when their name is brought up to you by somebody else in a positive light. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Or am I, am I the only person here like, Amen. that person's name is brought up to you in a positive light, and you're looking at that person that you liked up until that second. <laughs> You've never had a problem. But now the conversation just hits a brick wall. I mean, you're just like, boom. Oh. You like her, huh? Oh, you think she's a good person. And then you begin the Joab thing. Joab, Joab's a, Joab's a nasty little man, boy. I see him, he's a snake. He knows how to make insinuations and set things up and twist things and play around the background. He's a lot like Jonadab, just a little bit more physical. Understand what I'm saying? A little more respectable from a man-to-man viewpoint. Jonadab's a snake, and I see my mind, I'm not saying this is Bible, my mind sees Jonadab as effeminate. I see him as an effeminate little cowardly, snakish kind of guy who's more into people's business. He's more girly than he is manly. Not Joab. Joab not only will mess with everything and twist everything and set everything up and insinuate things to lead your mind. He's a master strategician, however you'd say that, strategist, right? Master. He's a master warrior. So he'll set your mind up and play those mental games with you to get the thing right where he wants it so that when he wants, he'll cut you wide open and watch you bleed out, spit in the wound and walk away. That's Joab. And now you're standing there with that opportunity to say, yeah, she's a great girl. Yeah, he's a great man. But he hurt you. Now, are you going to love him enough to promote him? Or do you have to get even? I think it's a real test of Christian character. I think it sheds a lot of light on the heart. Not David, man. David, you don't find David undermining anybody. David wouldn't even undermine Saul. When he's talking to his guys, he says, I'm not going to put my hand on the Lord's anointed. He's God's anointed. I'm not getting vengeance. I'm not getting even with Saul, although he has hurt me. At that point, Saul had hurt him worse than anybody else on the planet. He had messed with his marriage. Ran him out of the kingdom. For what? For nothing. Because Saul saw a younger man who was better than him. Saul saw a younger man with more character than him, more potential than him, and rather than taking his son-in-law under his wing and saying, hey boy, I'm proud of you. You're a real man. And I see character in you. Let me help you be better than I am. Hey, you see it? Yeah, that's my son-in-law. Yeah, David. Yeah, I know David. He's killed his ten thousands. Man, that's my son-in-law. I trained him and now he can whoop me. Proud of that boy. What's wrong with that, gentlemen? You're getting old. Deal with it. The younger generation's outdoing you. Good. Do you love them? Because if you love them, you want to see them outdo you unless you're all that matters. Tears up homes, that tears up relationships, that breaks up. You want influence over them. You want them to listen to you, don't you? Oh, you want them to listen to you so bad. You want them to respect you so bad, but you show no respect for them as adults. Show them a little respect and see if it kind of gains their ear a little bit. You do catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Yeah, that's right. We're so good at the vinegar, aren't we? 
You're insecure, Saul. Not David. David's setting his boy up. Setting his boy up. Setting his boy up. Setting his boy up. And pouring everything he can into that boy to make him the richest and most powerful and most peaceful king Israel's ever seen. The wisest man. Solomon wouldn't have been nothing without his dad. But you don't see David ever taking credit for that or putting that boy down. He set him up. You see what it means to love somebody? I want to be more like David. David didn't get vengeance. David wasn't going out there and saying, you know what, Absalom should die for that. I mean, Amnon should die for that. He's not vindictive like Absalom. Look at chapter 14. So what happens is David's heart is after Absalom, right? Absalom's gone and he's exiled out of the nation. And Joab sees the situation, and we'll get to that in just a second. But Joab, Joab sets it all up to get Absalom back home to Israel. And in verse number 28 in chapter 14, Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but saw not the king's face. So David allowed him to come back. But for two years, David didn't even lay eyes on Absalom. Therefore, Absalom sent for Joab to, to have sent him to the king. And he would not come to him. So David says, hey, Joab, go tell Joab that I want him to go talk to the king and see why I haven't seen my dad. And Joab's like, I ain't listening to him. I ain't going to hear him. And he sent again the second time, and he would not come. Therefore he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom into his house and said unto him, Wherefore hast thou set, wherefore have thy servant set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, and I, that I may send to thee king, to say, Wherefore am I come from Jeshur? It hath been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore, let me, see the, not, let me see the king's face. If there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Joab came to the king and told him. And when he called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself, bowed his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. You know what I see in that? Joab, Absalom is a vindictive individual. I'm talking about getting even with people. That hurt you. Absalom said, Joab, come here. Joab said, I ain't coming. Joab, come here. Joab said, I ain't coming. He said, okay, go burn down his fields. That's literally like saying, hack into his account, take all his money. Why? Because he wouldn't listen to me. When Joab didn't get his way, when Absalom didn't get his way, Absalom made sure he made people pay for it. You know why? Like a lot of people nowadays. You don't get your way, so you're going to give them the silent treatment. You're going to treat them like garbage. You're going to make sure one way or another they pay. Because you love you. You don't love like Christ loves. It's a vindictive spirit. Notice something else in the passage. Talking about messing with God's business. Listen. Hey, Joab, could you come here? I ain't coming to you. Okay. If I have authority to ask that person to come and they refuse to come, guess what? Nothing. I had the, I'm not talking about kids in your home, all right? You got to train your kids. I'm talking about in life. I had the authority to ask them that they didn't want to come. Okay, they don't respect you. Okay, they don't respect me. So what? 
If they're supposed to respect me and don't respect me, that is God's business. That's not my business. You know what I'm supposed to do? Leave it alone. You know what he said about you? Like, I don't care. (laughs) Why? Because I'm not that important. If he don't like me, if he don't come, he don't come. Not a wicked Absalom. It's just going to eat at their craw that they don't, he don't respect me. He didn't come. Set his field on fire. Somebody that loves themselves, they get even with people that hurt them. Somebody that loves themselves and wants to mess with God's business gets into the business of other people. See, in verses 1 through 24, that's exactly what Joab did. Joab sends to Tekoa in verse 2 and fetches that wise woman, right? And he brings her in there and he tells her what she's to say to the king. You know why? Because in verse number 1, the Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived the king's heart was toward Absalom. So Job was coming in and out of the kingdom and he's watching David. And he knows that ever since that all went down and Absalom's gone, he saw David grieve for Amnon. And then he saw the grief period pass and David healed up because David's walking with God and only God can heal you from certain things, folks. Did you hear what I said? Only God can heal certain things. And since David had a heart for God, God healed something that's unhealable because that's how wonderful God is. And Joab's watching that, and then he's seeing that, that, kind of, that kind of moody thing, you know, that like you were having a good day and then something triggered a memory and now you're a little bit discouraged. Do you, anybody know what I'm talking about? You were doing fine, but then something triggered a memory or a thought or a pain point or that thorn gets twisted a little bit and you're like, and now you're struggling. That's Joab's watching David. And he's like, I know what that's about. That's about him and that boy of his. Because I know the heart that man has and how much he loves his kids and how much he loves Absalom and he's bothered. So guess what he decides to do? He decides to stick his stinking nose his snaky little nose, his wicked little nose, his little nose that's just got that desire to know other people's business. It's sinful. It is why social media has become such a filthy, rich, lucrative business. It's because it tuned into sinful human nature. On both ends of the spectrum, your desire to be seen and be number one and everybody else's desire to know what's going on in your business, it's sinful. You're messing with God's business when you start worrying about everybody else's life. And there he is sticking his nose into somebody else's business. Now listen, I mentioned this last week about talking about your personal business. Do you remember that? I talked to you specifically about the danger of talking to your buddies about your marriage because your marriage will heal up, right? And you'll forget and forgive, but they won't. She'll always think your husband's a complete loser because when you were mad, he was a loser. Remember? Okay? I warned you about that. But if somebody comes to you with their business, it's a pretty hard spot for the person who's being approached to be in. Right? That doesn't necessarily make you a busybody in somebody else's business because they came and dumped on you. I'm just trying to say if you're on the receiving end, you need to be very cautious and determine who you're speaking to. 
Because the person that is speaking to you about their spouse or about their personal business might not genuinely be looking for help. Maybe you're just the latest person they're talking to in a long line of people they've talked to and they're looking to hear what they want to hear. They're going to get you embroiled into something. You're going to start giving advice on something and you're not even getting all the information. You're getting one side of the picture. So now you're advising them on a mess that they're in, but you actually might be messing with the work God's trying to do in that situation. Sometimes you're feeling sorry because you're like, and little is actually the problem. And you're saying, oh, well, what you need to do is, and you're messing with God's business. You see how dangerous it is when we start getting in each other's business now. I'm, I'm stepping back out of that because I want to take a little pressure off you like, oh, goodness, somebody came and told me their problem and preacher's going to think I'm a complete troublemaking fool here. Like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't be that person who wants to know, hey, what's wrong? What's going on? What are you, what are you struggling with, brother? What's your sin problems? Well, I just really got to know what their deal is. Did you see? Did you know? Hey, get out of the business of other people. Because you're going to cause trouble, Joab. Joab's looking at that thing and Joab's going, I got a judgment on this baby. David, you're supposed to forgive and forget. Oh, you're so cotton picking spiritual, aren't you? You know how easy it is to look at somebody and say, you got family problems? You should forgive. How do you like this line? This is the greatest line ever. Don't you know that sooner or later they're going to pass away and you're going to have to live with this the rest of your life? Hey, manipulator. Thank you so much for your manipulation. And I appreciate how wonderfully spiritual you are. But sorry, did I spit on you? You promise? Okay. You're not lying in church, are you? Okay, good. I've been avoiding them. I haven't passed, I haven't passed Gio here because he's the shield for the girls, but they moved from here to down there. Sorry, I left you out of that. You might want to switch sides. Listen, it's so easy sometimes to quote the spiritual thing, but God knows the details. And sometimes we put burdens on people and pressure on the person who's trying to forgive somebody who is actually not going to do anything but continue to try to destroy them if they, quote, forgive. That was Absalom. We'll look at it next week. Joab started messing with God's business when he stuck his nose in somebody else's business and began giving advice on something somebody else should be doing, David was right where God wanted David to be at this point in chapter 14, in chapter 13, when Absalom is gone. He doesn't even speak to his son. None of your cotton-picking business. Be careful, I'm telling you, be very, very... I unfortunately have had to learn some of these things the hard way. I've given some people some very bad advice that I thought was good advice. I've seen how subtle the devil is and Joab walks in thinking he's spiritual and thinking he knows more than he knows and starts messing around with David's business when Joab had plenty of his own business he could have been attending to. Plenty. He was a general. If nothing's going on, take the boys out and drill. I mean, drillers make killers, don't it? (laughs) 
What are you doing sticking your nose in the king's business and beyond that, the king's personal family business? If the king wanted your advice, he'd have asked you. And then you'd have had the right to say something because he asked you. But until then, God didn't put you in the position to say nothing, so it ain't none of your business. You know how many families and churches and all the rest of that have been absolutely torn apart by giving advice you weren't asked? Joab, you're messing with God's business. He not only manipulates David because he's using some leverage against David, but look at down there in chapter 14, look at verse 14. He tells this woman, he says this, For me must needs die, and there's water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered again. What did I just say to you about how people manipulate you? Don't you know they're going to pass away and you're going to have to live with this the rest of your life? Right? Isn't that what I said? I just said that, right? That human nature ain't changed a bit since 2 Samuel 14. Are you kidding me? Not a bit. He's using, he tells this wise woman, this is what I want you to say to him. Here's the angle I want you to use on him. And that's the angle she just used. Now watch. Neither does God respect any person. You know what he's saying? He's saying, David, wise woman doesn't know what she's saying, Joab does. David, you know God sent judgment on you because of what you did to Uriah. See, the nation might have known about Bathsheba that the nation didn't necessarily know about Uriah. Joab and David knew about Uriah. Joab and David knew why Uriah died in battle, but to everybody else, Uriah just died in battle. You know what Joab's doing? He's messing with God's business by messing with David's business, and he got leverage on him. Are you a sinner? Yes, sir. You ever mess up? Yes, sir. You trying to do right? Yes, sir. Evil men will catch you in a mistake, and you know what they'll do once they catch you messing up? They'll leverage it on you. Evil men and seducers, they'll start messing with your business, And then they'll try to manipulate you to get you to do what they think you should do. That's evil. Now watch. Yet doth he devise means that his banish be not expelled from him. Hey David. God's still speaking to you. God's still walking with you. But you expelled Absalom. Pure manipulation. The danger of some of that stuff is it's so close to the truth that somebody who knows their Bible and can quote the verses thinks it's truth. Am I losing you or do you understand what I'm saying? You see the subtleness of this thing? Now watch. Now therefore I am come to speak of this thing unto my Lord the King. It is because the people made me afraid. Skip down to verse number 16. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the men that would destroy me and my son together out of the inheritance of God. You know what Joab did and you'll find yourself doing when you get your nose in other people's business? When you're not getting what you want, you'll start leveraging. And when you can't leverage enough and you can't control enough, you'll start threatening. He said, listen, woman. She's a wise woman, right? He had to find a wise woman because David wouldn't have fallen for a foolish woman. So Joab went out and found a wise woman in Israel and said, here's what you're going to say. And she's like, are you kidding me? She says it down there in the passage. We don't have time to look at it. She says, the king's like, king's like speaking. He's like, God. He's like God. He says, well, God gives him all this wisdom. He knows all this stuff. She's like, are you joking? No way. 
He's going to see right through this. He said, you don't go in there and say this. I'll kill you and I'll kill your son. She says, all right. She goes in and she says everything she, ha- she says. And then she says, I need you to deliver me out of the hand of somebody who's trying to destroy me. And he said, uh, tell me something. Tell me the truth. She said, I'll tell you. He said, is not the hand of Joab in this thing? See how he, you know how he knew it was Joab? Because the way she's manipulating him, the way she's dragging up his past, the way she's setting that whole thing up as though Nathan was coming to speak him and condemn him before, this time he's not guilty, but they're trying to put false guilt on him. You ever look at a situation and say, they're not right. You need to forgive and forget. And you start quoting Bible verses at them, for all you know, you're a tool of the devil to put false guilt on them with the Bible verses you're quoting. Messing with God's business. Do you know sometimes, now listen, we live in a pretty evil world and evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse and you're sitting around people that have had problems, like big problems, and you're putting pressure on them to go forgive somebody or make something right with somebody. And for all you know, you're pushing them to make something right with somebody who's an abuser, who's hurt them on pretty extreme levels. But they're not telling you that. Because they don't want to tell you that because it's none of your cotton-picking business. Do you see, do you see what, I'm, you're, what I'm trying to say is you're not God. You don't know all the details. God can deal with people. God can deal with situations. God can and God will work it all out in the end. In the meanwhile, hey, we ought to mind our own business and tune our own hearts and see where we're at with God and just love one another. Not be sticking our nose in. Now let me give you my conclusion and I'm done. If we really are going to love like God wants us to love, and we're not going to mess with what God is to mess with, we have to give everything to God. What makes David, David? Why is it that David is where he's at after all that he's done? Look, David committed murder and adultery. According to the Old Testament law, if he had not found grace in the eyes of God, he should die. David's not dead. Beyond that, David's not dead, but David's still walking with God, being blessed of God and being used of God. In spite of some things in the past that we would all look at it and say, David, you're worse than Absalom. David... On some levels, you even seem like worse than Amnon. Amnon sinned against the woman, but David did that and then killed her husband to cover it up. So that's two for David. Why is it that God is cutting out Amnon and about to cut out Absalom when they don't seem to be an extreme of sinners from a man's judgment, from what we would do if we were going to handle it and we were going to be God and we were going to get in God's business... Why is it that David's fine and going on for God, reaping what he sowed, yes, paying for it, yes, but he's going on for God, and those two are dead? Isn't that wild? You know what David did? David gave it to God. Here's what I mean. When David messed up, David accepted what he did and gave it to God. When God said, I'm taking the child, David said, yes, sir. When God said, I'm taking more, 
David said, yes, sir. You know what David didn't do? He didn't mess with God's business. He said, God, you're God, and how you deal with me is your business, and thank you for your mercy and your grace and your goodness and your kindness and your love and suffering and the fact that you have compassion on the ignorant. And I'm an idiot, God. I'm a mess. And I'm really sorry for what a mess I am. You're right and I'm wrong. Now, if you can still use me, I love you and I really want you to use me. That heart. And then there's other people that sin against him and he's going, yeah, but I know what I am. And I love him anyhow. God loved me anyhow. I love him anyhow. Yeah, but he sinned against you. (laughs) I sinned against God and God loved me anyhow. What is it if another sinful man does something to me that hurts me? What, What is that? What is that? Nothing. You see where David's heart is at? Now, now, wait a second. Wait a second. From a human judgment, Absalom's still exiled. David's not speaking to him. What's your problem, David? You're not forgiving. No, David was 100% right with God. I'm not speaking to him. I'm not talking to him. And I'm not bringing him home. But man, I love my boy. Wish my boy was here. I'd love to see my boy. But I'm not going after him. A hundred percent right with God. Wouldn't you and I say, that man won't even speak to his son. You know how I know David was right with God? Because according to the Old Testament, Absalom should have been hung. He was a rebellious son. He was out of the kingdom. He was exiled to another nation. And that's where he was staying. He got involved in Amnon's sin. Got in there. Got that thing all messed up. Started messing with stuff he shouldn't have been messing with. Now he's out of the nation. Absalom, according to the Old Testament, because of his rebellion towards his father, should have been hung. He was a stubborn and rebellious son. David's saying, well, he's not dead. He's in another nation. Leave him alone. And he left him, al- he left him to God. Joab comes in there and starts getting all involved in that thing and brings this man back into this situation and winds up causing more bloodshed and more death and more family problems and more trouble by messing with God's business. You know what Joab's problem was? Joab didn't love David. Joab didn't love Absalom. Joab saw David's heart, saw an opportunity to manipulate David, to get closer to him, to work the thing out so he could get himself some status. And you know that's a fact because when Absalom wanted to talk to Joab, Joab didn't want to talk to him because Absalom was a threat to Joab. I don't have time to explain it, but he was a threat to Joab. Joab loved Joab. He didn't love God. He didn't love David. And he didn't love Absalom. David's sitting here with the blessing of God on him. I'm sure he's got some survivor's guilt. But you know why David's right and David's blessed to God and going on for God? David doesn't wind up dead. Because David was a man who had a sin in his nature. Anybody else like that? But that sin was not in David's heart. Joab had it in his nature and his heart. Absalom, nature and heart. Amnon, nature and heart. David, I might be a sinner but I don't love my sin. I love my Savior. 
and I want to be more like him. And so through all this mess, everywhere he turned, everything was constant heartbreak and pain and idiots and wickedness and foolishness and fallout and everything else. And yet he never got bitter. He never got even. He never put his hand into God's business. He let God work it all out. And that's the only way to live your life. I'm telling you. That's the only way to live it. Let God deal with it. Stand to your feet this morning with your wood, please, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. When I ask you this morning, where are you at in your relationship with Jesus Christ? What kind of problems you got? What kind of hurts do you have?